Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The slide in Apple shares and what it could mean to the market overall if that stock continues to pull back. The investment committee debating it. Joining me for the hour today, Steve Weiss, Liz Young, Joe Terranova, and BMO Chief Investment Strategist Brian Belsky. Take a look at the markets. We've really been in the red for all session long. We've got our eyes in a number of different important places today. There's your picture here. NASDAQ's the biggest loser. It is down by more than 1%. You got Brent above 90 for the first time this year. Dollar at six-month highs. Services was hotter, as the, guy, uh, as the guys on the uh, prior show were just talking about. The 10-year is up. Uh, nonetheless, that's weighing on the market a bit. Joe, I want to focus, though, on, on Apple. Um, it's down almost 3%. Mm-hmm. And there's a story in the journal today that they're going to, you know, in their words, test the limit on pricing of this new iPhone, which, by the way, is uh, a week from yesterday, is the reveal uh, of all of that. Do we need to worry about Apple? Because if you have to worry about Apple, you better believe you've got to worry about the market, I would think. So I think when you ask the question, do we need to worry about Apple, it's do we believe that Apple is going to kind of return to the overall personality in which it traded in the fourth quarter of 2022? Um, I am not of the belief that we will go back to that place. I think we're somewhere in the middle. I think that the enthusiasm, the excitement surrounding Apple needs to be somewhat tempered. If you are overweight Apple, I think you need to take a look at that. Um, And I think at certain times in the market, you have to understand that balance is the right position. And that's the way I would approach owning Apple right now. I wouldn't be excessively long. I wouldn't believe that you're going to be able to short the stock because you're going to get it back at 130 where it was in the fall of last year. I just think it's middling or muddling around somewhat in this sideways range. And it's waiting uh, ultimately for further catalysts down the road. I think the biggest question, and, and Eric Johnston of Cantor mentioned it yesterday, Brian, on Closing Bell with me, the idea of whether Apple's too expensive or not. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's forward PE on January 1st was 20 and a half times, okay? Today it's 29 times. It was over 30 as we know at different points of, yep. of this year. Yep. The 10-year historical average is, is 18 and a half. So on the first question, is Apple too rich? You say what? I say at these levels, yes, Uh, especially on a short-term basis. And you're probably surprised to hear me say that. Yeah, I am. I am, actually. You own it in two portfolios, just to be clear. Yeah, but here's why. Uh, Joe brings up a great point. To really have have an impact on on your portfolio, you have to be overweight Apple. And I think to be overweight Apple is very dangerous because the kind of number that you're going to have is like a 9 or 10% of your portfolio, Scott. And especially considering how long-duration assets are reacting to this higher 10-year yield, we've seen small-cap stock do the same thing. I think over the near term, it's going to be difficult to be at that level, 9 or 10%. But 
as we've been saying, I think that we can get this stock cheaper. I think we can get tech cheaper, mm -hmm. and I think stocks will probably pull back a little bit more. So at these levels, yeah, we're not adding. So, you know, Weiss, I, I want to back it up, if you will, um, with the valuation versus the growth rates in, in revenues, which have obviously been declining from where they were from peak, um, and significantly so, okay? If you look at their, mm -hmm. their revenue, their total revenues for, let's say, Q1 fiscal 23, they were down five and a half. Q2, they were down three. You know, Q3, they're expected to be down one uh, percent, and that's for their, their fiscal year. That is versus increases across the board, and in some cases by massive numbers. So if the revenue growth is declining and the multiple is increasing, don't we have a problem? Yeah, I mean, look, if you remove the name of the company, Apple, so you get rid of all the Apple sycophants, uh, you'd say, what would I pay for this company where revenues have been declining? And you sure wouldn't pay anywhere near that multiple. You'd pay half the multiple. So then put the name Apple back on, and you say, you know what, there's a brand here. What would I pay to that brand? you still won't come up to. But actually, Scott, today, I think the action is not that they're raising the phone price by 100 bucks in the face of a weak consumer and in the face of rising oil, which is going to take a greater share of consumer pocketbook. I think the bigger issue, frankly, is that there's a report in the journal early this morning that the Chinese government banned government officials from using Apple devices. Now, putting that in perspective, I believe Apple's the largest employer in China. The phones are made mostly in China, assembled in China, yet they're saying, we don't care. Even though we essentially control the manufacturing of it, we don't want you using it. So the market's looking at it and saying, is that the tip of the iceberg? Is this going to aggravate relations between Apple, with which Tim Cook has been a master at dealing with the Chinese government, and will lead to a further uh, decline in Apple business in China, where mm -hmm. they get 20% of their revenues? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the much bigger issue with Apple today. So, But what comes out of that is you're still going to want to be in tech. I don't think people that want an Apple form, I'll disagree with Brian, have a 9 to 10% weighting in Apple, particularly at these levels. That'll be better for the Metas, for the Microsofts, for the Googles that don't have that dependence on China. Because it's not going to be a Russia-Ukraine situation, but that could be the direction that it continues to go. And, and let's just be clear, you know, Liz, as I turn it to you, and we, we can broaden it out a bit. No one here is suggesting in, in any way that Apple's not a great company, Apple's got great products, Apple's got a great balance sheet. Apple's got arguably the most powerful installed base in the, base in the history of any consumer product company ever. Mm -hmm. All that said, you still have to justify the price for something, mm -hmm. okay? Now, is the valuation, do you think, I mean, how should we judge the valuation of all of those stocks relative to where the revenue growth rates have gone over the last year plus? Well, I think the market is doing it correctly by judging it based on growth and judging it based on what yields are doing and how expensive capital has become and the fact that these long-duration assets are getting hit as yields rise I know, is but not a that rational bad, though. way for it to happen. I know, but this stock, it's pretty orderly. This, this pretty stock orderly. yesterday was knocking on the door of 190. It's not that far away from its 52-week from its high. So the yeah. question <clears throat> then becomes, to what you're saying, has the market adequately been 
judging this stock, the price of this stock, relative to where the earnings expectations are and perhaps the revenue growth rates have been trending. Now, they're obviously trending back towards positive, but they have been negative the last three quarters. There's been a lot of negative revenue across all sectors, right? And tech in particular, I think, benefited from that big trajectory over the last, let's call it, 12 to 18 months. Then we entered a time where the market is looking at it, I think, more rationally and saying, all right, look at what is a P.E. multiple? We usually talk about it on a forward 12-month basis. If all of these P.E. multiples are higher than average or outside of their median range, are we in an environment where it deserves to be that way, where the environment can support P.E. multiples that are higher than normal? No, we are not. Yields are still high, if not rising. Curve inverted. Fed not necessarily clearly done hiking yet. So we're not in a friendly environment for those high multiples. And if there isn't earnings growth and a pathway to higher growth down the road, it's really not justified. So I think it does need to give some back. And that's across the board in a lot of those overvalued tech names. This is the most important question in the market, I feel, at this point. If, you know, if, if investors you know, in, in larger numbers decide that mega cap tech is is too rich. The valuations have just gotten too stretched. And then those stocks have, uh, you know, an ATM effect. If you're worried about, you know, where the market may go from here and you look at the gains, which are incredible still, Apple's up 41.5% year to date. Microsoft's up 38, Alphabet 53, Amazon 62, Nvidia 221, Meta 149. We've talked, Joe, about there being a chase towards the end of the year with more money that's still not positioned correctly flowing into those names. What if it's reverse? So what's interesting is that I don't think anyone in this conversation would dispute that Apple, that Microsoft, a lot of these mega cap companies are what I would call core equity holdings within a portfolio. That's exactly what they are. Why? Because they have a tremendous amount of cash on the balance sheet and they've had this ability to not only capture market share but have retention of customers. 2023, Apple and the mega caps are trading off of technicals. They're trading off of momentums. Now, I know a lot of people will sit back in their chair and say, well, wait, wait a second. But that, in fact, is what's going on because at the beginning of the year, in the first quarter, and again, I use myself as the example, based on what we witnessed in Q4 of 2022, you were a seller of mega caps. You were a seller of Apple. And believe me, I wasn't the only one that was doing it. If you look at the 13 Fs, you could see what a lot of hedge funds were doing in March and April. They were selling the mega cap names. Why did we buy back Apple at the end of April? That had nothing to do with fundamentals. You're talking about revenue growth. You are spot on. The revenue growth, the average revenue growth over three years is 15.5%. Over the last two years, the average is 6%. Now, what have we done? In the last year, we're seeing the decline that you cited and it's intensifying over the last couple of quarters. So this is not a fundamental conversation where we are in the present right now about time. Well, it's Apple. not intensified. Let's it be clear. Is That's momentum. I understand that. It's not that the, the revenue decline in terms of revenue growth is not intensifying. It's actually getting better from where it was. It's still been negative, though. And certainly when you look at that relative to where it was throughout, you know, all of 22, and I don't even want to give you the comparisons to 2021 because it's not even a fair fight. No, it's not. Um, that raises more questions than about the, the current valuation of the stock. 
I think if they have the inability to do what the consensus expectation is, which is to now recover from this contraction in revenue growth and to actually begin to see positive growth once again that ultimately reaches double digits, that, that's really where the fundamental decisions about Apple come back into play again. But until we reach that point, until we hear from earnings, I think Apple right now, it is nothing more than a proxy for where technicals are in the market. Well, this phone, this new phone better be a monster. I mean, because iPhone revenues have been the, the year over year, you know, revenue growth there, too, has been lumpy up, down, up, down. Right. This is the quarter where, yeah. where it matters. Right. New phone, September quarter. I think there's two additional things to flush out, too, and, I, and I'm sure our good friend Danny Isa is going to come out and talk about Apple weakness right, right before the week before. They come out with a new product, what almost always happens. We've been on the set for years talking about that, but I think there's two points. Number one, what, what's happening with Apple really exemplifies what's going on with the market. We're normalizing. The entire market is normalizing. So you had the tech stocks shock and awe, shock in 22, on 23. Now we're seeing a normalized type pullback, and this is very, very healthy. We're not used to that in the market the last two or three years because it's been so momentum driven. So this is all part, Scott, of the stock market in the U.S. normalizing into trading ranges, into positive earnings growth, into not momentum in all of these binary type trades and Apple is leading the way on that. Oh no, some Liz would suggest that the market's been, you know, abnormalizing. Not normalizing, it's like the Fed's done all this stuff, rates are elevated and somehow, you know, people are trying to validate overall valuations of the market in a way where others would suggest they can't be validated. It's Mike Wilson, price is wrong, earnings expectations are wrong. J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic today says there's a crisis looming. They've been negative uh, for the better part of, the, I don't know, the last six months at least, uh, if, not, if not longer. We think there's now a higher likelihood of a crisis over the next six to 12 months, the severity of which could be higher than market participants anticipate. Are we taking sort of for granted things that still might happen, like Eric Johnston of Canner argued yesterday with me on Closing Bell? I don't know that we're necessarily taking it for granted. I think the ingredients are there for a crisis to materialize. They are? The ingredients are there for some sort of shock to come in and, and pop a bubble that I think if we look back on this time in hindsight, we'll say things were obviously overvalued given where we were in the economic cycle and given where we were in a hiking cycle. But it hasn't happened yet. And we've spent all of this year, literally all of this year, waiting for that moment, waiting for the big thing that was going to do it and take us down. And the regional bank thing didn't even do it, right? <laughs> so now I think investors are at a point where they're saying, well, where else would I go? I'll rotate around within equities, but I'm not going to pull my money all the way out of equities. I already have a ton in treasuries and money markets and everything else. We've had plenty of time to make those rational decisions. Now it's the opportunity cost. And because there hasn't been a big correction, there's no need, there's no emotion that says, oh my gosh, get my money out of the market, tape it to the back of the toilet. So people are just kind of holding tight and trying to justify why they're holding tight. But that will happen until there's no justification left, which is usually the recipe for some sort of crisis or bigger pullback because nobody was ready for it and everybody was positioned on the wrong side. Hey Weiss, this is the talker today, this note from Marco about this crisis looming. Unprecedented rise in interest rates which are slowly eroding economies and setting the stage for a market de-risking, also cites geopolitical deterioration that has significantly increased tail risks for economies and global markets. Are, are You think the market's too complacent in, in its current state? 
I, I do actually, and I think it's too complacent, not for geopolitical risks. I mean, those are just a fact of life, and geopolitical incidents are always a buying opportunity uh, in the aftermath because they, they resolve themselves pretty quickly in terms of what the long-term damage could be, and you take that out of the equation. I think this is more, frankly, of concern about we've been waiting for a recession. Uh, some have been predicting it, and it became base case there will be no recession. And now as we're seeing a slowing down in the economy, that narrative is picking itself back up. Where's the great so slowdown in the economy, though? Where, where is the great slowdown in the economy? ISM services was well, I didn't say great. No, but I'm just saying, where is the slowdown in the economy? Yeah. The ISM services, which was hotter, would right. just be yet another data point that would suggest that the economy is still, still hotter than people thought it would be. Right. Well, well, thing, you know, everything doesn't fall at once or atrophy at once. It takes time. So what you've seen is you've seen labor, you know, the job creation has come down. You've seen wage growth come down. You see consumers spending their balance sheets and consumer debt piling on. You've seen advanced bookings from Southwest uh, come down quite a bit. So, and that, that's been something I've been expecting because you book airline tickets months and months, maybe a year in advance. And now that you've run off that, uh, you'll start to see that come in a little as you will see travel. So you just can't get away from the fact that high rates are taking more and more market share, so to speak, from, from your budget. And if you need to buy a new car or if you need to finance anything, it's going to be crushing to you because rates have gone up so much. So are we seeing now a delayed effect? And I think that's what the market's worried about. Mm -hmm. So if the rates slow the economy, then you've created uh, just a greater dispersion between where valuation should be and where valuation is. You're still trading at valuation levels of a free money economic environment and that's not here so i believe that you've seen the market lag the reality and you've seen the impact on the economy broadly lag the move that we've seen in interest rates and that's the concern out there i believe that we're seeing right now in the market so so brian belsky i mean that's a powerful statement that weiss weiss makes right you're still trading at valuations of a free money environment which no longer exists your comments today you know 50 50 on the s p for the end of the year quote, becoming increasingly more likely. Yep. Why so? Well, September is going to give you a good buy point. You don't want to raise your market target when the market's rallying. You want to try to see a bit of a, a pullback. That's number one. Number two, if you go back and look at history, and I, love, I know people love to throw out these statistics, but when you have a 20% gain from a, from a, bull, a bear market low, uh, it's very likely to see a double-digit gain for the next six months as well. But more importantly, I think, if you have the first eight months of the year, uh, that of a 15% gain, you have 20% after that for the next six to 12 months. So, what does all this mean? Uh, it Nothing. Means, it, well, here's what it means. It, it doesn't means mean anything. History means, doesn't mean anything. This time around, it would suggest because. Well, I would say this. I, first of all, we're, there's no way we're in a bubble because a bubble means that you throw a dart and you make money. This has been a stock picker's market the entire year where correlations have been all over the place. E broader ETFs have underperformed more active ETFs and more active strategies. That's number one. Number two, from an earnings perspective and evaluation perspective, earnings have held in there, margins have 
held in there. Margins are still well above long-term averages. Number three, in terms of interest rates, we're normalizing interest rates. The average 10-year treasury over the last 50 years is 5%, 5%. And so when you start to see stocks operate in a strong environment with respect to the economy and interest rates are remaining steady, Scott, that means the economy is strong. That means you should be buying equities. Lastly, in terms of, of international stocks versus the U.S. and, and Canada, we think North America is going to continue to lead because of all of these things. Geopolitical risk and poor fundamentals and poor growth around the rest of the world is going to bring assets back to the U.S. You're assuming that mar margins aren't going to contract. One of the reasons that margins are made strong is because inflation was elevated, so the price paid for goods was, was higher. Companies pass through the cost by raising their own prices. Once inflation starts to erode, you really think they're going to be the, the same level of pricing power as the consumer arguably gets weaker, like Weiss suggests? Well, I do, because if you take a look at the S&P 500 from a bottoms up, all 500 stocks, Scott, we're seeing very strong margins and very strong revenue growth from other areas. And, and the other thing that I think people are missing is, even though cyclical stocks have been hurt here a little bit and small cap stocks have been hurt a little bit, we think that we're going to see some strength with respect to revenue on the cyclical side and even small mid cap for the, for the last quarter but of the year. But you must not believe then that there's going to be any lag effect from what the Fed's done if you think that we're going to get over 5,000 on the S&P between now and the end of the year. The bears were right last year and it was fantastic. The primrose path has not worked out this year because they keep on looking over their shoulder. And I think the more macro you are, the more wrong you're going to be and the more bottoms up fundamental and not be making valuation calls. Because remember, Scott, valuation is the worst predictor of future performance, especially when you're looking at markets. Individual stocks, like we talked about Apple, better. But when you're looking at the overall market, not predictive. Do you want to weigh in on that? Uh, I think valuations are a bad timing mechanism in the sense that you shouldn't make a buy or sell decision today based on where something is trading. But they are suggestive if you look over a longer term period, five to 10 years, of what forward returns might be. And that would go for a broad market perspective, too. So if you look at where valuations are today, it suggests that over the next 10-year period, the S&P is going to return about 3 or 4%, which is lackluster compared to its long-term averages of about 7%. So I think that suggests, and it doesn't necessarily mean that one sector has to take more of the brunt of it, but that would suggest that we are just generally overvalued right now, regardless of the environment. What about 50-50? 50-50 right on the S&P, which is becoming, as Brian says, increasingly more likely. Is that sound reasonable to you or not? I mean, I think that at some point, and Brian's going to I was going to say he's going to criticize me for this because <laughs> he said if you get too macro, you're going to be away. wrong. I'm going to be macro about this. I think the Fed is going to get what they want. What they have tried to do this whole time is constrict capital, limit demand, cool things off, and they've gotten a cooling in the growth rate of inflation. But inflation is still growing. So prices have not come down. They just stopped going up as, as fast. Things are still expensive. And at some point, and the, the point if you look at history, which I think some of it has to be used as a guide, this is the moment. We're 14 months out from yield curve inversion, the real decidedly yield curve inversion. We are somewhere between 12 to 18 months into the hiking cycle. This is exactly when the bad stuff starts happening. So when I hear people suggest this time is different, we might look back on this and say, you know what, this time turned out to be exactly the same. In other words, there's no way you're getting to 50-50. <laughs> and I never said this time yeah. was different because that's, the, that's your career's Did over. Did I sum that up? That. Okay. In other words, there's no chance. And you know what? Yeah.
that we're getting 50-50 as far as Liz is concerned. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of times you sit in the seat and your, your intent is just to be specific about identifying opportunities, whether it's an investment or a trade. And it's in a particular stock, it's in a particular sector, it's in a particular asset class. Then a lot of, then a lot of the other time you spend sitting here on this desk is just trying to remind people of how they have to be behaving. And I think we're at one of those moments where you just can't be overly enthusiastic and you can't be tremendously pessimistic about the environment. You have to be remarkably patient. And if someone were to say, okay, well, let's go back and try to identify where the opportunity is, the only visibility, the only clarity that I see in front of me right now is that energy is low-hanging fruit. But with that low-hanging fruit, you have to accept more risk. We talked about this yesterday than maybe you're comfortable with if you want to try and track the spot price of oil. And then to Brian's point, look, 50-50 to me, that's a reach. But if we are going to begin the journey towards 50-50, well, you better believe that people are going to be reaching for Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Meta, because those are the tools that will get you the exposure if the S&P begins that journey towards that level. That's why there's the belief that those stocks pull back further. They'll be bought in a second. We'll see. Let's take a break. When we come back, yeah. we'll do hey, our call. Scott, before we take a break, I just wonder <laughs> if I have time to make a phone call, call Druckenmiller and Tepper and tell them macro doesn't matter. Um, do I have okay. that time? Weiss, you can, you can waste, our, you can waste our time in the break, but we're going to go to one. <laughs> and we're going to do our call of the day on the other side. HSBC making a call on health care today. They say it's ripe for stock picking. We'll tell you the names they like. We'll debate them as well next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Dow's down 236, as you saw there. Time for our call of the day. It's healthcare. HSBC initiating companies in that space, saying the sector's ripe for stock picking. Uh, Brian, you own several names that we need to discuss. So J&J initiated hold. Yep. Uh, that's on your list. Let, let's start there. You, you've got a number. J&J, Pfizer, Regeneron, Thermo Fisher, United Health, Amgen, Gilead. They also, uh, Amgen initiated by Gilead, initiated Reduce. You want to go through some of these? 
Yeah, J&J is just your steady eddy with a big yield. Gilead has this huge balance sheet, and I think from uh, from a exposure with respect to pipeline is going to be really strong. Thermal Fisher is an amazing name in terms of the instrument side of things. Our bellwether really is United Healthcare, a good Minnesota company, but also great balance sheet and dividend growth. I think uh, healthcare in particular, uh, especially in the fourth quarter and into 2024, could do quite well in terms of uh, where value is going to be more and more of a momentum factor in performance. I'm looking at healthcare uh, performance, which obviously is not great. Nope. Is that going to change? It's negative 3.6% on the year. Yeah, I think so because remember last year was a great performer uh, when uh, we were in dividend growth and value, and we probably went a little bit too far on the growth side this year, and I think you're going to see some money come back into healthcare. It's not so much the, it, I think that the hangover from COVID is hurting some of the pharma stocks, but there's other areas in, in healthcare that look really good, some of the names that we just talked about. When I go back and I think about Amgen, I think about the go-go 90 days when it was, it was biotech, 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 go, 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 but it's a really big pharma company with a great dividend and great cash flow. Amgen, Am they go uh, 320s, the price target. What about healthcare? We're going to have a, I mean, a catch-up trade I've, in that area of the market. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I've used healthcare as my final trade a couple times on this program in the last few months. Um, I questioned for Belsky though. Do you think money will come back into healthcare because things get more defensive? Because in the large cap space, mm. right, healthcare is pretty defensive. Small cap space, it's growthy, it's biotech, it's pharma. Does it rotate back in because things got defensive, or does it rotate back in because of valuations and opportunity? I think it's valuations and opportunity, but I also think, Liz, it's going to be more of a broadening out of the market, and value in healthcare will benefit from that for sure. Yeah. Joey, Merck ten, and the IBB. Yep. Ten healthcare names in the uh, ETF, and we've been reducing exposure for the better part of a year. We were overweight at 16% down to 6%. Um, Align Technology, West Pharmaceuticals, Stryker, Regeneron, these are some of the names that have worked well. But I think there's been a lot of distortions over the last 24 months because of COVID that has created this environment where there was a lot of positive beneficiaries in healthcare, and that's faded away now. And I think now uh, in understanding the fundamentals of the sector, you're back to where you were pre-COVID. There's a little bit of difficulty within that, certainly as it relates to managed healthcare. And I do not see, uh, respectfully, I disagree, I do not see the type of opportunities for the remainder of the year so in you healthcare. Don't, because you don't see a broadening out of the market like Brian does. I, I don't, no. I, I, I think this is really, the leadership's been established. And if we're going to regain the overall positive trend for the year, I think it's going to be that very leadership that's going to take us higher and energy will participate along the way. Well, I think people forget that healthcare is the second biggest sector in the market in S&P. And I think a lot of investors have left there. So just think if you sell two or 3% of your Apple, right, and put it into healthcare, that's going to buoy the sector pretty yeah, but why would you? Why would you, why would you sell Apple and why would you sell a piece of Apple and put that money in healthcare? Well, if you why, why wouldn't I put it in uh, other areas of the market where I, I think maybe would have even more upside? I if don't know. That's do, been beaten down. I don't know. Right. If you do, and if they're beating, well, I mean, uh, think about places that are beaten down. It's it's financials and healthcare, and those are going to be the two big value sectors going forward. Well, unless so. I think energy is going to have a, a bump, a bump. Like, like Joe does, perhaps? Well, unless you want to increase your tracking error pretty, pretty substantially, energy is 3% of the market. So you want to be increasing exposure and tracking error for a 3% market uh, like energy or 15% uh, market weight like healthcare. No, but you could be overweight 
energy relative to, to health care, couldn't you? You could. You don't have to track the market at 3%. You could, but then you have to kind of think, so why is why are energy prices spiking? And the, is the next call you're going to 100 or 120? If that's your call, then you should be buying energy. That's not necessarily our call. Well, I mean, you're almost at 90. What do you, you think we're going to 100 or 60 next? I think the more likelihood of, of lower uh, energy prices are, are likely. I do, as we start to see more supply come on the market next year. Let's get the headlines. Pippa Stevens, uh, speaking of energy, you can have a comment if you want there, too, Pips. You cover this. <laughs> hey, Scott. Well, for the headlines, former President Donald Trump suffered yet another blow in his defamation case with writer E. Jean Carroll. A federal judge ruled today that Trump is liable for statements he made about Carroll in 2019 when she went public with claims he raped her decades earlier. The judge also said the upcoming trial for Carroll's civil lawsuit against Trump will only deal with how much Trump owes her in monetary damages. Since a jury in a separate but related case already found him liable in the case. China is reportedly banning the use of Apple iPhones in central government offices and for government work. The order comes as the country tries to reduce reliance on foreign technology and shore up cybersecurity. That's according to The Wall Street Journal, which cited people familiar with the matter. The ban could have a chilling effect on Apple, which counts China as one of its biggest markets. And a record number of Americans will have some skin in the game as the NFL kicks off its season. The American Gambling Association says a record 73.5 million Americans plan to wager on the league this season, a huge jump from the estimated 46 million people who bet on the NFL last year. The majority of people are expected to make their bets online. Halftime Report returns right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to ETF Edge, your go-to place for everything exchange-traded funds. I'm your host, Courtney Reagan, filling in today for Bob Fasani. Well, investors are eager to, eager, eager to close the books on a pretty rocky August and turn to September, but with worries over sticky inflation, lofty valuations, and a weakening China, could there be little more than a September swoon ahead? The big issue for September is threading that Goldilocks needle, meaning data that isn't too strong but isn't too weak, and seasonality is not on the market side. So what can we expect in the month ahead? Let's ask Tom Linden, vice chairman of Vetify, and Christian Magoon, he's CEO of Amplify ETFs. Tom, you know, we actually saw ETF outflows in August for the first time since February, but then demand for fixed income appears to be going pretty strong. So what's the big story for September? Yeah, usually we don't see half of the money going into fixed income, but the Fed's done a really good job controlling inflation. And with that, all the money that's been on the sidelines is starting to come in on the fixed income side. We see financial advisors and investors starting to go longer duration, not only into corporate credit, but also high yield with the idea that maybe at one point in time down the road, if we do hit a recession and the Fed starts cutting, 
that 5% yield won't be available anymore in money market funds. So in a, in a way, they're protecting themselves. Mm, okay, so Christian, it seems like fear of the growth trade is fading, partly in response then to higher rates, as Tom's suggesting, though investors are still embracing a more risk-off approach. So what are you seeing in the flows, and then how do you recommend investors get in the game? Yeah, Courtney, for us at Amplify, it's all about high income investing this year and equity income specifically. So we think going into September where the markets could be rough, historically they have, focusing on high quality companies that pay dividends, but also having the ability in that strategy to write covered calls against those uh, companies to create dividend and option income is key. So we have two ETFs, our Devo and our iDevo ETF that yield five to 6%, you know, more than double what an average dividend uh, product uh, yields, gives you participation in the market, but with a floor in terms of giving you some of your total return in, in the form of dividends and option income. Well, we'll have much more coming up on Trends to Watch in September, plus a deep dive on thematic news like Bitcoin and marijuana making waves in the ETF business. That's all ahead at 1.10 p.m. Eastern time. That's only on etfedge.cnbc.com. Scott, for now, I'll send it over to you. I appreciate that, Court. We'll see you then. Thank you. Up next, the committee debates the banks. We'll find out how to position your portfolio as the ETF that tracks that space pulls back 8% in the last month. Plus, tomorrow, speaking of the banks, do not miss David Faber's CNBC exclusive interview with Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. Thursday on Overtime, 4.15 Eastern. We're back on the half right after this. We are back. Deutsche Bank focusing on the financials today, highlighting some near-term catalysts. But they say over the long term, you need to be cautious. How long ago was it, my man, that, that you know where I'm going because I always go. I know. I always go there. Say the three words, Belsky. Financials, financials, financials. <laughs> How long ago was that? It was about a year ago. Okay. What yeah. about today? Uh, financials, 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 or no, no, no? No, I think uh, select financials, financials, financials. Okay. <laughs> not, <laughs> not the regionals. Um, I still think the money center banks, the asset managers, and the broker dealers, because from a fundamental perspective, uh, they're scalable assets. Uh, they've got big balance sheets. Price to tangible book is real. Wait a minute. Uh, price to book is real. We don't have to talk about price to tangible book anymore. And these, these companies are building, uh, building dividends. And I think, um, you know, from the multi-asset kind of divisions, they're much better suited. Um, and I do think that you're going to see some consolidation in, in the regionals, but that's not a theme that we want to play. We just want to buy the stocks that we think are going to do the best. So what about, you own, by the way, B of A and BlackRock, Blackstone, City, Goldman, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, because you're all over the, all over the space. Um, the concern on the note is that Concerns surrounding both net interest income and credit, given the economy is likely late or end of cycle and refinancing risks are, are out there. You don't share any of those concerns? Well, when you see the big banks, especially in the Canadian banks as well, uh, let's call it quote unquote over reserve, the reserves are up huge um, and they're anticipating some of this. Remember, most bank managements are very, very conservative. So they've seen this, especially since the, the crisis. So. We think they maybe have been too conservative through this, um, and their balance sheet strength, I think, is going to get them through some of these potential credit uh, issues, which all, could come from the smaller banks that don't have as prudent, let's say, cash flow or, or balance sheet management yeah. as the big banks do. But, but, but even if their balance sheets are strong enough to get you through any you know, turbulence that comes mm -hmm, your way, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily bode well for the stocks. 
Well, I think it doesn't bode well for, let's say, broader ETFs and financials. I think that I think you're going to see certain stocks outperform pretty dramatically other areas because on a fundamental perspective, it is going to hurt the smaller banks relative to the larger banks. Joe, what do you think here? I think that as Brian is highlighting, bank sheets, uh, balance sheets are absolutely flush. They are focused on the regulatory requirements of the last 12 years. And in that case, the opportunity is in the debt market, not in the equity market. The only bank that I own is JP Morgan. I bought it in March in the middle of a very intense mm-hmm. regional banking crisis. I wouldn't own any of the regional banks right now. In fact, we sold all of our regional banking exposure in April. In the financial sector, what do we own? Visa, MasterCard, Brown & Brown, um, Arch Capital, Arthur Gallagher, Fleetcore. These are not banks. So to me, you want to own a big bank? Go to the debt market. Weiss, you own Bank of America and Goldman. Yeah, and they have been doing too well. That's, that's, that's an understatement. Look, I don't expect the banks to, uh, to perform. I'm holding because I've got some gains in them. Uh, it's sort of like a, a call on a uh, IPO market happening sooner rather than later. I actually don't think that's the case. I don't think there's a lot going on that's positive for the banks. They have slimmed down, but they're, they're just stuck in a rut now. Management continues to be, be excellent in operating and efficient businesses, but that doesn't lead to a higher stock price, which frankly I don't see sometime next year. Mm-hmm. Liz, financials? Look, if you're coming at it from just a valuation perspective, they look great, right? Second cheapest in the index, <laughs> perfect, but that's not the reality. And the fundamentals might be there for some of the big banks. The big banks were big beneficiaries of the regional bank crisis, but I think that has all but played itself out. And the way that banks have traded, especially even during these last few weeks, is pretty bad in the sense that there's no appetite for buying. Nobody's out there that's excited about it. I think that there are market participants expecting some sort of credit issue, whether it's a deterioration, a contraction, an event, and the banks are suffering for that. So I would still steer clear for a while. It doesn't matter the size. Uh, I don't think that it's a safe place to be. Okay, we will take another break. When we come back, Mike Santoli with his midday word. He'll be right here. And by the way, we are three weeks away from CNBC's Delivering Alpha Summit. I'll be there with some can't-miss interviews, talking to Bill Ackman. Can't wait for that. Brad Gerstner as well. And you can sign up, register, scan the QR code on the screen, or go to cnbcevents.com slash deliveringalpha. Halftime, back right after this. All right, senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is here with us at the desk today. Uh, I've got two problems, I, I guess. Rates up, Apple down near four percent. Yeah, that's uh, a problem. Those are both problems. I think that you know you were mentioning the banks; they're also not helping out. Um, the rates uh, we keep getting tested for uh, rates bumping up against this high end of the range. And you know, I remember last week one day, Scott, a closing bell. The poll question was: Is the pullback going to resume in September? Or are we going to finish the month higher? And my thought was, why not both? Because it did feel as if it was kind of best case scenario that we just had the five percent pullback, and then we were going to just be off to the races. So uh, I think continued chop in response to uh, getting tested on the yield front, the dollar going higher. You know, energy's down today, and, and oil prices not doing anything in terms of breaking out, but still kind of adding to this idea of 
you know, how resilient is this economy? Yes, earnings estimates have gone up over the course of this quarter. Most of the upside is from big tech, not necessarily from cyclical. So I think we're still just sort of fighting it out. Uh, still a few percent above the, the August lows. Another little breach of the 50-day the moving average just to frustrate everybody on both sides. Should we be talking more, as you always do, and, and look at really closely the performance of equal weight yeah. again relative to you know, the market and cap weight. That really depends on your time frame. Today, it's outperforming. Today, it's mostly the mega caps that are weighing on things. It's unremarkable. Yesterday, equal weight got trounced. So uh, on a six-month basis, on a year-to-date basis, the average stock has not gotten escape velocity, but it's, you know, it's up 15-ish percent maybe off the October lows, uh, and it's still below where it was in early February. So it still feels like, you know, we're, we're in this, in-between zone. We have not reestablished real upside momentum, but credit markets aren't telling you things are falling apart. The economy still seems like it's got some resources, you know, to draw on from here. So uh, we continue to to, to be confused. No, you know, you had the note from Kalanovic today saying there's a crisis on the horizon. And but then on the counter of that, as I saw another story uh, from another news organization that says there's no sign of credit stress no, in the market. No, it's not really you know, credit despite, stress. Despite no. you got a you know a trillion dollars of bonds off the Fed's balance sheet, and it's you know so far okay. Well, and massive as people have been saying, massive corporate issuance uh, starting yesterday, and that's a little bit of a challenge to just absorb it. But once it's absorbed, it's a net positive if, if spreads don't blow out. I'll see so far, they have. Yeah, I'll see you on closing bell. All right, that's Mike Santoli. Final trades are next. Closing bell, 3 o'clock. We're going to be all over this Apple sell-off today uh, and the market at large, by the way. Dow's down 326, 327. S&P's down more than 50 points. So we need to keep our eyes there. Adam Parker, Stephanie Link, Low Tony's going to be on set with me as well. So uh, we've got the right people to talk about that and uh, everything that's happening between now. Uh, and then Brian Belsky, uh, you have some new buys. I do. Uber? Yes, first Walmart? time ever. First time ever. All right, let's Uber. go Uber first. Buy the, it was, it's been on our buy the dip uh, list for a long time. It's an industrial stock technically, and we think industrials are going to do quite well heading into next year. And then the last thing, quite frankly, I just want to be more like Steve Weiss, and I know he likes the stock a lot, so that kind of pushed me into it. But, but from a longer-term perspective, this is a scarcity proposal that I don't think people understand about Uber. I wish you didn't say that part. <laughs> whatever. Uh, Weiss. Yeah. Um, Weiss. Well, I'm, I'm just going to... Uh, Weiss. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Is he on the phone? Let's go. Final trade. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Hey, you want my comments on Uber? No, I want your final trade. Is that... <laughs> okay, my final trade is Brian Belsky. I love him. But Baba. Baba is going to just continue to move higher. Thank you, Weiss. <sighs> <laughs> Joe. Just one of those days, Scott. It's just one of those days. Diamondback Energy. I won't give it the uh, ticker symbol because everyone will think I'm talking about mega caps. Okay. Liz Young. Joe and I did not commiserate on this. My final trade is energy. All right. Uh, does it for us. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.